You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Michaeline Duclef, who is a reporter for National Public Radio and also the author of Hunt, Gather, Parent, what ancient cultures can teach us about the lost art of raising happy, helpful little humans. Welcome, Michaeline. Oh, thank you for having me. So I wanted to ask you just about the premise of this book, because on the surface, it seems highly implausible. I mean, you're, you're a chemist. And if someone said, I'm going to write a book on, uh, you know, let's go to some ancient cultures, right? primitive cultures, and see what they can <laughs> teach us about, you know, chemistry and physics and, you know, particle physics. I mean, I don't think we would expect to go there and, and find, oh, you know, they've figured out how to build a nuclear power plant or they've figured out how to build all these petrochemicals and so forth. And so, you know, why would we think that since we are, in fact, at the epicenter of knowledge and science and so forth, why would we expect to learn anything from these folks? And then I guess, you know, a secondary question to that is, you got a PhD in chemistry. Why can't you get a PhD in parenting? I mean, we have all these departments. The vast majority of human beings participate in parenting. Very few people participate in upper management, but every single university has a department on, of management, right? And yet, you know, none of them have departments of parenting, right? There's, you can't get a PhD in this. So I guess, I don't know whether the second question answers the first, I don't know, but why? Kind of. Why I mean, it? I think they're related. I think they're related. I think there's two parts. I think, first of all, parenting and when I would argue even parts of psychology, social psychology really isn't a science. <laughs> you know, like parenting, like, we like to think, and the New York Times even has a whole section now devoted to science, evidence-based parenting. And the truth of the matter is, if you look at the vast majority of that science, it's not actually science. I mean, you know, they run experiments and they do analyses, but like what they actually are concluding is a really science-based. And so if you look back through history, the vast majority of our advice on parenting, and I'm not talking about the kind of physiology, like nutrition or vaccines or, you know, but I'm talking about like how you tame a tantrum, how you get a kid to go to bed at night, how how you get them to clean that, help you clean the house. These things, we don't have science to tell us. And in fact, one of the psychologists in the book told me, you know, it's easier to put so, you know, a rocket on Mars than it is to like, you know, really do an experiment in social psychology about parenting. And so we think we're all science-based and we think that we do all this parenting through science, but the truth of the matter is it's not. It's through myths and advice that's really old, like hundreds of years old, and through a lot of bad science. And so why wouldn't you expect to go somewhere and find information about it? You know, if it was just science-based, I can, I can kind of see your question of like, Somebody even told me that once. Somebody actually told me in San Francisco, a very liberal person <laughs> that said, what are you going to learn from those people who live in the dirt? I, I, I'm not kidding you. This is very early on in my... So there is this idea that we can't learn from poor people. I, I don't really understand this idea. But the second thing I would say is that we have a lot of problems when it comes to parenting, right? We are stressed out. We raise these kids that are stressed out, you know, we can't get our kids to be helpful. We have raised really unhelpful children. Um, we raise children with poor emotional maturity. And so maybe we should start to wonder, like maybe we should start to wonder where we're getting our advice and maybe we should expand that view to, to places and cultures where they don't have those problems or haven't had those problems. In terms of the, the departments, this is a very interesting observation, right? That like we value so little parenting I mean, I think that that's what that says to you, that there's not a department. I mean, this is something that everybody on earth has, is a parent at some level, some type of parent and gets parented. And yet we don't have institutions devoted to it. And I think that speaks volumes about what we value in our society um, and speaks volumes to how maybe we should look outside our society for advice. The last thing I'll say is that I didn't go into this project thinking that I would get advice from 
these communities, which are fully modern communities. But I have to say every piece of advice that I started to get and try in San Francisco, like worked like amazingly well. And that's really why I wrote the book because it was transforming our family and our lives. And I, and I, I wanted other people and in America to have the opportunity to get that same transformation. Maybe the reason why we don't have departments in it is because people never considered parenting to be a, like a real job, right? A real occupation. Well, not a paid one, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, we're very underpaid, mm -hmm. right? And the thing is, is like, this is very new, this idea, right? The parenting's not a job. And um, one of the things that really struck me after we returned home, so we traveled to the Yucatan, we traveled to Nunavut, the Arctic Canada and Tanzania and with the hot When you say we, you mean you and Rosie, your daughter. Me and Rosie, she was she three was at the time. That's right. <laughs> she was. She's a good anthropologist. You know, we got back and one of the things that really struck me was how parenting was respected and valued at the same level as other tasks, right? There wasn't, it's very genderized in these communities, right? Although in the Hadzabe, in the Inuit too, like men did do a lot and one would argue they did more than here. There's gendered rule, the roles, but the roles are valued the same. You would never say, you know, you're just a parent, right? No one would ever say, you're yeah, just a yeah, mom, Yeah, right? for sure, yeah. right, or, or, right, exactly. And, but you could just feel it the way the men interacted with the women and the way they spoke about the job, it was, you could just feel it, that there was this respect for the women and their role. And when I came back, actually, I started demanding that respect from my husband and, and from my colleagues. And it really had, I, cause I started to see how there's a lot of minimization and even your question, like just a job, right? It's like, it's kind of cultivates and perpetuates this idea, right? And that's a new idea in our culture. And not that long ago, it was just as valued as jobs outside the home. Now, I wanna diagnose some of the pathologies of modern American parenthood. I guess I wanna know, do you think if we were to kind of point the finger of blame or causation on this, is it really a result of kind of incorrect thinking about how parenting works and maybe we could point the finger at the parenting industry, right? I mean, how do people learn about parenting? In these societies, no one's buying a parenting book. And yet in our society, we get most of our insight into how to be a parent from this industry, right? All these books. And, and you talk about how this industry got started, right? Where they were trying to tell orphanages right, how, to, how to raise right, kids. Right, caretakers. Yeah, right. and, and so yeah. it's funny, I don't know whether my newsfeed is reading my brain, but I had an article from The Atlantic that popped up in my newsfeed just before we started talking. And it was from a couple of years ago and it was, it had a list of all these books, you know, like why Danish parents are better, why French parents right. are better, why German <laughs> parents are better. And they didn't mention your book because it hadn't been published yet. But these books, they're not written for the most part by experts or PhDs. They're oftentimes written by journalists. And even if they are written by, you know, PhDs. A lot of them are written by doctors yeah, and PhDs. Yeah, so, like, <laughs> the vast majority. But, but these, you know, the Inuit and the Hazda, they don't read parenting books. So is it a result of kind of the, this whole body of thought kind of going off the rails? Or is it more due to just the simple economic and social forces that we're all subject to, like the suburban living and two-income households and the grind of, mm -hmm. you, you know, modern capitalism? Well, I think definitely capitalism has some role to play and has amplified it. But I would actually argue that the industry is the result of the trigger, that we've lost what the Inuit, the Hatsabe, the Maya parents have, and that's our teachers. We've lost the, the people who teach us how to parent. I tell people like, you know, my husband and I spent like a month preparing for the birth of Rosie, right? We took to these birthing classes and we didn't take one parenting class. Nobody ever said like, are you ready to, you know, do you know? There's traditionally that is taught through your childhood. You watch other families raising children. You watch your mom, you watch your sister, your aunt raising children, your, your, your grandparents helping. So slowly over time, the parent teaches the child how to raise raise a child themselves but then also when you have a child you know it's documented in so many places right there's just several people that come and help you and teach you and the reason why we've lost that so that started to go so i'm talking about the extended family right we this idea of a nuclear family is incredibly new right it really is about 100 150 years old 
in newer and poorer economic households and still exist in a lot of families in America, right? But about 100, 150 years ago, we started losing the extended family. We started living in these boxes with two people and dog and, and kids. And what that did was that meant that people started having babies and not having any knowledge of how what to do with them. You know, we didn't see it. And this process actually began like 500, 600 years ago. And in the book I talk about, there's research out of Harvard and the University of British Columbia, which makes the argument that the Catholic Church was the one that actually started this whole process by preventing certain marriages and breaking up kind of big clans and big extended families. And there's this analysis that looks at, that was published in Science a few years ago, that looks at like how long the Catholic Church has been influencing a community or society or country and like the extent to the formation of the existence of the nuclear family or the destruction of the extended family. And you can see it pretty profoundly, right? That Europe has been under the influence a long time. And so the nuclear family has become really the norm there. And other parts are like slowly becoming more nuclear family oriented. And in these papers, they argue that this destruction of the extended family is what led to the arising of kind of the Western psychology, which is like individualism, consumerism, right? And all these things that Western psychology does, it's really, the psyche does, it's really weird, right? And you can imagine, right? If you've lost your extended family and you've gone from living with five to 10 people in, in, a, in a home or in a neighborhood to living by yourself with your husband or your wife, how that would affect your parenting. And in what the women and the men had in the Yucatan, in the Arctic, in the Hadzabe, oh my gosh, the Hadzabe women had it in spades, was this group of people that helped them parent, right? The Hadzabe women, we, we were in this camp with like, they live in these camps, these beautiful little huts that they build. And there's about 30 people and they live together. And it's not necessarily kin at all. And they move around, they're not permanent and they can go to a different camp. I think they get in fights and they, you know, they go to different camps and stuff, but they have about 30 people. It's about five or six women that are really raising their children together, you know? And there's, there's one woman in the book who had a, a child with a disability and all those women, eight, nine hours a day were working together to raise those children. And that's how you learn to parent, right? And that's what we've lost. And, and it happened, like like I said, like it started happening like a couple hundred years ago. And that's when these books arose, right? So if you look back at the history, yes, parenting books arose for doctors and nurses that were taking care of orphans in these large foundling hospitals and orphanages. But if you look at the history of it, they actually found this audience in the middle class, upper middle class mom and dad who didn't, were losing their teachers and they were hungry for this knowledge. And so slowly we, we started learning through these books. And I think that's what created this industry of, I'm going to tell you how to do it in this, you know, in these 200 pages. And now it's, I'm going to tell you how to do it on this YouTube video. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, I think part, certainly part of the story, right. The destruction of the extended family and, you know, you no longer have multi-generational households. You no longer have people living with their cousins and second cousins and so forth. But it seems like, you know, you don't necessarily need that. You could have alloparenting through friends, right? And through neighbors. And it seems like, I mean, and certainly when I was growing up in the 1970s, we didn't have extended family, but at least the neighborhood seemed a little bit closer to what you describe in just suburban America, where the kids would roam around and hop around households. And if you found yourself in someone else's household, you'd eat dinner with them and it seems like, so the, the nuclear family, it's not simply that you don't have relatives around, but it seems like people tend to stick to themselves and they're not really as, as community oriented. For sure. You know, and, and I think you get into this idea of like privacy, the rise of privacy, right? Every place we traveled, homes were these porous structures, what you're describing, right? Like you, kids could go, go in and out of different homes and, you know, you could spend it like in the Arctic, I remember like kids would just come over and spend the night. And I, I don't think the parents knew. I mean, it was just everybody was taking care of everybody. Right. And it was this very fluid, porous home. And what has happened is we've become very, very kind of in love with privacy. And the home has become this very kind of castle-y thing where, you know, you, you don't want to intrude. Right. I mean, you can even look at like the number of rooms. Right. And see how 
we're obsessed with privacy. <laughs> we really, we really are like individual rooms and individual space. And, and I think, yeah, that's the trajectory, right? It started off like family neighbor and it moved to more like a neighborhood. Maybe you've left your, your parents town, but you still created this like neighborhood. And, and then now the, the extreme really is like you go to American towns, like even small towns and there's no kids playing outside. Right. And um, that has a lot of repercussions on its own, but you're exactly right. It's just become more and more this way. And we absolutely have our parents, right? We have friends and nannies and teachers and coaches. It's just, our society has also over the last hundred years, like really devalued them. There was a Pew research done not that long ago that you know people say like the ideal version of a family is like a mom staying at home with the kid. Whereas one could really argue evolutionarily and psychologically that the ideal family is actually, you know, five adults living in like, you know, a multi-unit house, right? And taking care of all the kids together. I mean, that's where I think parents would thrive and children would, would thrive. But we've moved, we've moved so, so, so away from that. But you can bring it back pretty easily. You don't, like I say, you don't need a village. People always say, you need a village. No, you really don't. You need like two other adults that are helping and that really care and you work together and you can find that because people are hungry for it. Yeah. Well, you talk a bit about how you would spend so much time with Rosie that you guys would kind of get sick of each other after a while. Oh my God. Right. And for sure. And so, you know, one thing that I found puzzling is that it seems as if parents spend more time now engaging in what they call child, you know, rearing than they did in, in the past, which is kind of strange because, you know, people have, there are far more dual income households and so much other stuff going on. And so one would think like, oh, if I, if I spend more time with my child, then I m must be doing, you know, more parenting and therefore I'm going to get better results, right? So- I mean, that's the thinking, right? Yeah. The more you do and the more you say, for sure, the better you, but, but I mean, that speaks again to this lack of valuing allo parenting, right? That the best results are when you spend time with the children, which is very strange. Nobody, I mean, in other parts of the world, you just don't find this thinking. Like I talk about in the book, like we were in the Arctic like two days in this little tiny fishing village. And, you know, the first couple of days we didn't know many people. And I was actually trying to find a place to stay. And this woman like ran out of her house and she was like, you've been with this child, like only you by yourself for like two days. And this is abnormal and something's wrong. And like, you can't do this by yourself. And she would like literally wanted to take Rosie and give me a break. You know, and then one of the moms said to me, like, you spend too much time with her. Like, she, she misbehaves because she's tired of you, right? So there's a totally different way of thinking and there's a different assumption there. Your, our assumption is the more the parent spends time with the kid, the better the outcome, right? That is like more pervasive thinking. Whereas like, if you look throughout human history, I would argue, and if you look around the world, that's not the pervasive thinking. The pervasive thinking is children need to be around other children, you know, multi-age groups, Children need to be around older people and children need to separate from their parents very early on. And that this is what makes a healthy parent and a healthy child. And there's a lot of like evidence to back this up. It's probably one of the, the strongest theories on parenting out there is that, you know, this is really where children thrive is when they're, and there's some studies that look at this, like how much time the parent kids spend in hunter-gatherer groups and around like two, it starts to decline to like 20% or something. So it's very early on, the kids start really not spending time with their mom and dad. But, you know? but on the other hand, you know, even though we're spending more time with our kids, we're spending time on what you would call kind of child-centric activities rather than using that time together to focus on adult-centric activities. Maybe now would be a good time for you. I think you categorize the two main approaches to parenting that are dominant in the Western world as, you know, helicopter parenting. And there's this, you know, free range parenting, which is sort of a pushback against the helicopter parenting. So maybe, maybe, yeah. So maybe start, well, start. And at first when I was reading this, I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to read about free range parenting. And you distinguish between this and that, but maybe we'll start with the helicopter parenting. You point out that there are high levels of anxiety, right? Among young people. And I think this is not simply due to COVID, this preceded COVID, very high levels of anxiety, high levels of depression. And, and of course the parents also, right? High levels of anxiety and depression, postpartum depression, and certainly anxiety around parenting. And I think what you're offering is sort of, you know, you're, you're pointing out that it's, it's a lose-lose, right? That the parental anxiety is in many ways sort of leading to the child anxiety, the, the parental 
obsession over engineering the child's life and providing continual direction and exhortations is bad for them and, and it's bad for the parents. Yeah, for sure. I think it's like a combination of engineering and, and like optimizing the child's life, right? And again, I think it comes from a really good place. Like you say, we want the best and we want to do the best. But I also think there's a lot, the anthropologist David Lancey calls it the shrink wrapping of the child. <laughs> She's a little bit like negative, but like there's a lot of fear around a child physically. And COVID has exacerbated this, but it was before, right? That if you look at kids, like this idea that you talked about in the 70s, that's like me. Like I roam the neighborhood, I roam streams and forests. And this is rare because parents are really afraid, right? And a lot of the direction and a lot of the control is this fear that's been kind of put in, into us. So I think there's two things that cause the anxiety and the helicoptering. And it's interesting because a lot of parents tell me, oh, I don't helicopter and I give my child a lot of autonomy. And the truth of the matter is, I thought I was like that, but the truth of the matter is it is very rare in the United States. And when you actually see it, like what it looks like for a child to have autonomy and for the parent to actually step back and not free range, but like you said, like step back and observe and be there and support, but let the child have autonomy and give the child autonomy. It's very different than what you see in the US. And for me personally, when I started doing it, I describe how you, it's pretty easy to do, at least to try. It's hard to maintain if you're used to it, but to start trying, once I started doing that, my relationship with Rosie improved enormously because we weren't arguing so much and we weren't in conflict so much. And that's really the root cause of anxiety in the U.S. is this kind of constant nagging and telling the child what to do and on top of the child. And, and children know it. They know they, they need it. Like multiple children tell me it. And parents tell me that children tell them. But it's like we don't know how to do it, really, yeah. I think. Well, you know, it's funny because I've talked to some people about education and they say, oh, yeah, you know, the educational system, which is built on, you know, rigidity and obedience and structure. Well, that was functional, right? It helped to create these, you know, factory workers that just did their thing. But it doesn't seem like the type of parenting that you're describing is really functional, right? It doesn't seem to create adults that are, you know, capable of thriving. I mean, I, I spend most of my time with, <laughs> I mean. What are you talking about? The world we saw are, are um, kids that are like incredibly functional, like highly, No, no, I'm talking about functional. the parents, the, the way we raise kids here in America. Oh, yeah. I thought you meant in the book. No, I was no, like, no, 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 but, no but, exactly. But, we but, don't raise functional it's, children. It seems like, you know, we say we want to have autonomous, you know, self-directed people with good, yeah, you know, self-emotional management. Like this is what we all talk about. Like this is what we want. And that's what we're trying to produce. Mm. And we're doing, and yet it seems like the Mayan kids would be better prepared to thrive in, in American society even than you know, the American kids. Oh, absolutely. I mean, all the children that, that we were with, you know, have enormous amounts of executive function, right? Because they've been, you know, I say if, if you, if children are just in child-centered activities, so activities that are made just for children, how will they ever learn to behave in, in an adult setting? Like one of the anthropologists, Susan Gaskins told me like, it's, it's actually like a very a deprivation for the child, right? A child whose nights are filled with activities made just for children and whose weekends are filled with parties, birthday parties, zoos, you know, art classes, you know, just constant instruction and is in this, this world that's really not rich, right? And, and, and she said, you know, children that live in the adult world have a, you know, it's a much richer environment. It's almost like the difference between like a rat or a mouse that's living in the, in like a curated laboratory environment, you know, where you stick a couple like fake plants in the cage to give them like stimulation. I mean, that's almost what like the kitty environment is compared to like, you know, a kid who on the weekend is out with his dad building a house. Well, do you think it's because the know? parents, they think their own lives suck and they don't want the kid to kind of keep the kids as far, like, we're going to preserve you from this horrible adult life for as oh. long as possible. I mean, for sure, you can see in the psychological literature that around the late 1800s, there was this kind of turn. And I mean, some of it is like in response to ch factory workers, right? That like children were being put into working conditions that, that were unsafe and, you know, 
the adult world changed very quickly at that time, right? In the Industrial Revolution. And so they're, you know, putting kids into that environment was not good. So for sure, around that time, there was this very, very clear change in psychology that said a child's job is to play, right? And up until that point, for one could argue, you know, 100,000 years or, you know, how, however we've been on this, this planet, parents have thought that a child's job was to play. Absolutely. All the kids play in these places, but it's also to contribute to the family and start learning how to contribute. Right. And that there's, that's what we've lost. Yeah. Well, we have this idea that child labor is, is like exploitation. And I suppose, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, renting them out to a oriental rug factory, that's one thing, but if you're, you know, (laughs) having them help you cook, that's, that's a, that's something different. I mean, I certainly grew up in my, my household the number of, I mean, I had to do everything. I had to clean the gutters, you know, rake the leaves, all that kind of stuff. And and you talk about this uh, comedito, this concept, which I, I, re- I really love this. Oh my gosh, this, it's so beautiful, and, and, isn't it? Yeah, and so how do you create this, right? I mean, one, I remember and when I read it, I was thinking of this movie that came out a couple of years back. It was called Baby. And I don't know if you remember this movie. And they went to like three. Oh, I've, I've watched it a hundred yeah. times. <laughs> and, and, the thing, and the thing I remembered was in, and I don't know whether it was, was it, was it, Khoisan or Hadza, or if they had a one, they're the Khoisan, yeah, in in Namibia. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and I think the key lesson there was that you have to let the kids fail, right, if you want them to succeed. And you know what we do is like we're always in such a hurry if we're cooking, kid mm-hmm. comes over and starts making a mess, you're just like get out of here, right? And they're just like no, no, right. let the kid mess up, and that's how they that's how they learn. And, and I'm wondering why, you know, we have this whole fail fast, you know, you live in San Francisco you know, I live in the Bay area. We're all about like failure, failure, failure. But then when it comes to our kids, it's like, we, we don't want them to kind of fail in that way. Is that just cause we're too busy? I interviewed Dan Willingham, one of my earliest podcasts. And he said, the way to teach kids to read is to start with the assumption that, you know, they're not going to read like adults, you know, beginners mm-hmm. have to start at the beginning. <laughs> and, and so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. why is it that we don't let them, you know, learn through trial and error? Yeah, it's really interesting, right? Like, I think in like every culture that I've interacted with besides the West, you know, parents really think that learning to be helpful, learning to clean the house, cook, you know, be a family member, a contributing family member is a skill that takes time to learn, just like we teach children to learn to read and write. And yet we kind of think that kids just know it. And so why do they need to help? Why do they need to, you know, why do they need to practice, right? Because there's this sense that they know it, that we're going to put a chore chart on the, the wall and they're going to know what to do. You know, I even remember like telling Rosie when she was like two, like load the dishwasher. You know, there's like this sense that somehow maybe it's the devaluing of the work, but it's like this sense that they don't need to practice, right? So why would you let them interfere with what you're doing, you know, slow you down, make more of a mess if you think they're kind of, they don't need to practice at it, right? So I think one of the things is like shifting that view of like, look, if you want a kid to be helpful, know how to, you know, clean up, know how to cook, know how to take care of younger children. They need practice at it, right? And the way they get practice at it is just like you said, like trying, you know? I mean, this is a very, very clear, crazy thing that we do and very clear distinction between basically Western society and almost every other culture in the world is that when kids are younger, we tell them not to help, right? We shoo them away. This has been documented over and over again. Just like you said, we say, go play, right? And what happens is over time, the kid's not stupid. And the kid thinks like, okay, well, it's not my job in the household to clean or help. My job is to go play. My job is to go watch TV. And then when they're 10 or 11, we're like, why aren't you helping, (laughs) you know? But I think it comes from this idea that one, like. Children's role in the house is to play, right? And children aren't supposed to work, even though there's a lot of in-between between between never doing anything and working in a factory, right? (laughs) And one could also argue that for children's own psychological benefit, learning to help and contribute in the household is huge, right? Because you're not, the kids aren't just learning to cook or clean. They're also learning to cooperate, right, with you right? And work as a team. I mean, Ocomodito and a lot of what we talk about in the book is about working as a team. And this is a team effort, right? And we tend to emphasize independence, doing things on our own. That method of like shooing away is definitely one of the key things that leads to these very unhelpful kids that has also been very documented and something we struggle with. And I have to say, 
people say this, I don't have time. I don't have time. I don't have time to let them help. And it, it's the thing is, is they don't have to help at every meal or like, you know, everything. And the help can be tiny, tiny. It can be like most of the time the kids would like, you know, come in and make one tortilla and leave. Or the little girl in the Hadza, you know, would carry one little bucket of water or one little thing, right? It's these tiny, or tiny, go grab the bowl, go grab your little sister and, and, you know, it's these tiny, tiny little things. So one is just give them a tiny task. And number two, value that learning as much as like Mandarin on Saturdays or the violin on Saturdays, you know, set aside an hour a week where you're like, we're going to make a meal together as a family. We're going to spend the time outside, you know, cleaning up. The yard or we have like on the weekends like two hour cleaning fests where we all clean you know and what that does is it's like it values that work and i and i tell rosie like do you want to have clean clothes do you want to live in a pigsty you know like you acknowledge the value of that work right and it doesn't have to be all the time it just has to be a, a little bit and when they do come over to help just just let them a little bit most of them will leave after like a minute or two. And just by not shooing them off, you're telling them that, yes, this is, this is, this is part of their job as a family member. You know, I'll tell you an interesting story. I was talking to Belinda Campos at UC Irvine. She's a psychologist and she, she's from Mexican American family. And she said, she watched the Brady Bunch when she was little and she found that they got allowances for doing chores. And she told her mom, she's like, you know, these white kids get allowances. Like, you know, I want an allowance. And her mom, said, yeah, you know, this is a team effort. Like you live here, you eat here. You know, she hasn't read my book, but she's like, you live here, you eat here. You know, we work on these tasks together. And then her mom said, in fact, if you don't start doing it, I'm going to start charging you <laughs> room and board. <laughs> like, and I just love that because that's the difference in the thinking, right? We think they should be rewarded when they help. Whereas that the Mexican American view or Belinda's mom is that the kid should be helping because they get the award, the reward of living there. They get the benefit of living there. Right. Very different view. Yeah, I mean, this speaks to intrinsic motivation. And, you know, I think, well, going back to learning, there's a whole nother section in the Inuit section where you talk about how, you know, kids have to learn executive function, right? You have to learn emotional management. This does, you know, you don't come out of the womb with these skills and so you have to let them Same thing, yeah. let them fail at it and don't get angry if they're failing at it but i think right. the reason why we do is because i think there's a view of human nature that we have in, mm. in the west which is that kids are these machiavellian mm. rational little scheming ad adults that are yes, just trying to exactly. figure out like how can i how can i get what i want and 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 you know there's evidence that they're exploring they're trying to understand the social world and so forth. But why would we think that they are just like energy? They want to be the, you know, they want to rule the roost and manipulate, right? Yeah. I know my sister told me when Rosie was six months old that she was already manipulating me. <laughs> and people will say this that babies are manipulative. And I'm like, no, you know, there's no data that toddlers are manipulative, right? Or even four or five year olds. I think as they get older, there's probably more data on it. Or there, there, there should be. But yes, this view really shoots us in the foot, I think, right? Because we come at them as if they're they have all this malfeasance, right? And all these kind of nefarious motivations. And of course that makes us angry, right? And that makes us come back very defensively in a very conflictual way, right? And whereas the Inuit elders would tell me like, she's not pushing your buttons. She's not manipulating. Like one woman actually laughed at me. She was like, of course she's not pushing it. She's not manipulating you. She's three, like she's just, doesn't know how to behave, right? And can't handle whatever situation she's in. And so, you know, explodes and screams and yells because that's what babies do. And so that's what toddlers end up doing. And they would tell me like, you know, there are these irrational, illogical creatures. And it's your job to like slowly over time, just like teaching them to read and write, show them logic and teach them logic and show them mature behavior. And so if you yell or get angry at a child in an Inuit community, you're just thought of as a child. You know, you're just, it's a very immature behavior. And so the parents will just sit there. Like the kid's like totally freaking out and the parent doesn't leave and doesn't ignore them, isn't like angry, isn't upset, just sits there. Or they're like, bring them over to the window and show them the outside. There's a lot of like creating awe in the child. And um, I remember in the, in the Hadza, a little boy was having a total tantrum and the mom 
didn't leave. She just stood there and like took her hand out and like put it like near his level and just stood there and, you know, created this very calm anchoring presence for the little boy. And after like 20 seconds, which is pretty long for tantrum, put his head on her leg and it was just done. And very few words. We have this like highly verbal approach to parenting. Well, to everything. Like if you read psychology, right? That talking about it will fix everything, right? <laughs> and like very, this is one of the first things I learned when we went to the Yucatan was I was like trying to figure out how to get Rosie to behave on the plane because I knew we had like a massive trip to Tanzania. And I was like, how do I get her to behave on the plane? And I realized like on the way back from the Yucatan, I was like, I just need to shut up. <laughs> like if I just stay calm and be quiet and kind of ignore her, like not completely, but like not talk to her, she just kind of entertains herself. Well, this gets back to the kind of model, acknowledge and practice template that you offer. The up. formula. Yeah, it's yes. the formula. And you've also got the team. We'll have to, you know, tell us what those all stand for. But but I wanted you to distinguish this from positive parenting, right? So, you know, mm. the positive parenting folks say, you know, don't yell, don't scream, don't chastise. Instead, you should, you know, praise, praise, praise and say, you know, oh, you know, that's you did such a great job putting that dish away. And, and you're saying, no, 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 like that's also an appeal to extrinsic motivation in a way. Right. Yeah. So so how is the positive just kind of the flip side of the, the, the negative in a way? <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I think there's elements of the positive parenting that you find in other places. Right. This like no yelling kind of calmer approach, but I think it gets a little overboard. And I think there's, there's too much ignoring of the bad, right? I mean, like if you look at anthropologists, there's a handful of anthropologists who study American parenting. So they study American families, like through an anthropological lens. There's, it's such fascinating work. And one of them is Peggy Miller. And she has a book about praise and her research has shown they followed like four or five families in, I think in Ohio for like a long time. And what she found, and I think this is my problem with positive parenting, is that the, the families ignored like half of the child's life, the negative life, the negative side, right? It's just ignored. And so there's this kind of very disingenuine um, approach, right? And, and this you don't find, like parents are just straightforward with kids. It's like, look, this is lazy. Or, you know, like, this is unhelpful. You're being unhelpful. You know, there's, they just say kind of what's wrong. Okay, that was helpful. This is like the acknowledging part of the formula, right? Just acknowledging what the child is doing, whether it's good or bad, right? And, and I think the positive parenting is missing that side of it. And that, I, that is important for children. It's important for adults, right? Because children are trying to figure out, like, what is important for my family, right? What's important for my society? And if, if you're not giving them the negative parts of it, you're, they're missing half of the puzzle. And so I think that's one thing that's missing. The praise thing is a hot mess. I mean, okay, look, I always say like, if you can't find it in any other culture in the world, you got to start being suspicious of it because like we didn't like invent better parenting. <laughs> that is for sure. You can just spend like two days with the Maya parents and you'll see that we are not good parents in many ways. So, you know, you just don't find praise like that. And especially like kind of disingenuous praise. It's like kind of overboard and children don't need it. And there's no data to support that it, it always works. The data are all over the map, right? Like, you know, sometimes it helps motivation, sometimes it doesn't. It definitely um, encourages competition between siblings. And um, so, I mean, it's just not necessary and it's exhausting for me. Um, the other thing about positive parenting that kind of irks me is like, this idea that you're telling the child what to feel. I don't know if you've heard of this, like this idea of like the child's upset and you say, you're angry and I see that you're angry and like your emotional coaching, I think is what they call it, right? Again, you don't find this anywhere. And in some ways, I think it's very controlling of the child, right? Because you're kind of telling them how to feel, you know? And, and in a lot of cases, maybe they shouldn't need to be angry. Right. Like, the, like, you know, like they have to share their water with their, like, I remember when we flew back to Canada, we were in the airport and, you know, there was a, a, a white family there and we'd just gotten back and the kid was crying and screaming like a seven-year-old, which I hadn't heard a kid over three screaming the whole time we were in the Arctic, like the, the toddler scream and that's it. Um, and they were screaming because he had like share his water. And the mom was like, oh, you're so angry because you have to share the water. And there was just this like, and it was like, 
Okay, number one, the child's acting like a complete selfish person. And if you're telling him it's okay in some way by telling him you're so angry, you know, whereas a lot of parents would say you're being selfish and then ignore the child, ignore the outburst, right? So very different approach to, oh, you're so angry. I can see you're so angry. And then she said to the kid, like, do you want some potato chips? And I was like, wow, the kid is like not caring for his family. You're telling him it's okay and he can be angry about it. And then you're actually asking him if he wants something, right? It's just, I, I'm sorry. It just <laughs> like blew my mind because it's just so different than like how a child would be treated in Western society like 50 years ago, right? Yeah. Well, and treated anywhere else in the world. You talk, you talk about these two levels, right? You talk about micro and macro. And so the micro parenting is the sort of in, in the moment kind of ways in which you yeah. issue commands or praise or whatever. But then there's also this idea of the macro parenting, which is presenting your child with an environment. It, you know, remind me a lot of the schedule, yeah. right? The schedule, like the overarching day, like what is the child doing? Or even right? what's in their environment, right? So, yeah. So, you know, the micro would be like, don't play with that iPad. And the macro is like, well, why is there an iPad in the room, right? So, um, exactly. It reminded me of, you know, Emil. I think Emil is the first parenting book of, you know, our time, right? By Rousseau. You know, he says, you got to engineer the environment, mm. right? Behind the scenes to create a, a place right. where kids can thrive and learn. Interesting. Yeah, it's like if you're having a conflict over the iPad, like the Inuit parents would be like, don't have the iPad. Right. <laughs> right? Like one of the moms told me, she said, like, we would never let like an object create conflict. And I was like, wow, <laughs> I let objects create conflict like every moment of my life. But yeah, you're right. In engineering the environment can make your life easier. But to some extent, the macro environment is beyond the control of the parent. You know, so much of what kids learn comes from the other kids. And I remember in the in the last chapter, I think you were, you were talking about, you know, lateral learning and how, you know, kids have to be around other kids and kids, the older kids and younger kids and so forth. And I went to Montessori school and they had, we had first, second and third grade all in the same classroom. And so we were all yeah. kind of teaching each other and helping each other out and that sort of thing. It's tough if you'd be, if you live in a neighborhood and you're like, oh, I'm gonna let my kids play out in the yard and there's no other kids. It's tough, right? So if you're trying to raise your kids one way and all the other parents are raising them a different way, does that create some tension? I mean, does that make it harder? Do you have to kind of find like-minded parents or a neighborhood? Are there, yeah. there going to be these neighborhoods where people are going to go? I mean, I know this from the free range parent movement. They're like, oh, let's go, go to Berkeley where all, you know, there's some <laughs> free range parents and so forth. Oh my gosh. I wish, I wish there were free range parents in Berkeley. Um, you, you would know, think, think that think would be there. Hard. You'd think that's I know, you would think, but I don't think it's true anymore. <laughs> right. You know, I think it is harder. There's no doubt. I don't I don't want to deny that. But I do think, like I say, you don't need a village. You don't need five families in a neighborhood. You really just need like one or two families that you can that share this idea with you, right? And and so we actually it's been really great. Suzanne Gaskins told me about this. She calls it the auntie network, where like Basically, she teamed up. She So she lives part-time in this Maya village as an anthropologist, but she also graced her three boys in Chicago. And she teamed up with, like, two other families, and they kind of shared the child care and child rearing together. And so, you know, one family would pick up from school one day, and another family would pick up school from the other day. And then the weekends, they would, you know, drop the kids off at other people's houses. And, and so you kind of create this little, little mini pod, right, is what we would call it now after COVID, where, you know, those are the allo parents, right? These families become the aunts, the uncles, the cousins, right? And and so that's really all you need. I mean, even just, I've learned like one other family, one neighbor where the kid can just go over there and the other kid can come over, right? And and so I think focusing more on like quality of these, these families and, and how they overlap with your thinking of how kids should be treated is more important than quantity, right? And can make a big difference and also just give you more breaks and, I think we also shouldn't underestimate the support, right? That the parent feels like one of the things that is a massive contributor to our happiness and our state of feeling good about life is knowing you have somebody to reach out to if something goes wrong, you know, and ha having that feeling. And I think it's like a really underestimated factor in our lives. And so these parents kind of form that too, right? That like once we have this, had this network, it's like, Oh, I know if like I need extra childcare or an emergency happens, 
there are these parents that we've grown close to and we can reach out to. So you're absolutely right. It is really hard. When I got back and read the book, I actually lost and kind of disconnected with some friends because we didn't share the same, you know, views and perspective of children. And it's difficult. It's difficult to be around parents that are really bossing children around, which is the kind of the norm. I really like emphasize in the book and I, and I want the listeners to know that like, we're talking about parents that like issue two commands an hour, right? Like two instructions to the child. And I like measured like how many commands I was giving Rosie and it was like over a hundred an hour. And so really shifting that had like a massive effect on me and Rosie in our relationship. And that like two, three commands an hour is really what autonomy is, right? And you're not ignoring the child. You're you're watching the child and you're helping if needed and you're guiding if needed. But it's like one of the anthropologists told me, it's like the parent is actively resisting saying things. And I, this is what, I mean, Western psychology is so aligned with these parents because that's what psychologists show over and over again. That's what children need is to just have the parents step back and let the child be, right? You know, it's interesting. I took this little boy swimming and his dad told me, this was like two days ago, his dad told me like, you have to stand right next to him because he tends to go into the deep end. You know, he, you stand right next to him, okay? Stand right next to him. And I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then like, I got there and I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna stand right next to him. And I'm gonna watch him really carefully from like 20 feet away and see what happens, right? Is he veering into the deep end? And that child not once veered into the deep end. Every time he got near it, he went to the wall. And I'm telling you, if I stood next to him, it would be a different story. And that's, and I, and his dad asked, did he, and I was like, oh, you know, I didn't stand next to him. And he was, he was fantastic. And that's the difference, right? Is like, I'm going to watch and see what the child can do before I act, you know, before I intervene. And when parents intervene constantly and constantly like tell the child what to do, first of all, the child feels like they have no control over themselves, which creates enormous amounts of anxiety. But second of all, they never have a chance to try. You know, the little boy would never have a chance to try to take care of himself and keep himself out of the deep end. But the parent is always there, you know, like hovering. So Yeah, and you know, when you talk about kind of emotion management and how kind of anxiety is contagious, I thought a lot of what you were saying extended beyond the parent-child relationship. For sure. I mean, it's something that affects you as a member of any organization, any couple, right? I mean, you know, a lot of what you were saying resonated with me with respect to, you know, how companies are trying to encourage better teamwork. So, you know, there are stories about companies and I know some folks at at Facebook, right? When there would be like a, a system crash, you know, everybody would just be like, all right, let's figure out what the problem is and identify it and fix it. And just like when you described the coffee cup flying across the the, <laughs> the the carpet, you know, people were just like, yes. okay, you know, I mean, I remember one time, right. so, you know, someone like hit me with their car and I got out and I was like, oh, okay, hey, what's up? And th- I think they were expecting me to be raging at them, but it's like, hey, you know, right, it, it, right. it's water under the bridge, right? <laughs> so, so that seems like a general skill that, you know, needs to be mastered. And it's good thing about it is that it's contagious, right? Yeah, for sure. What's the point of yelling, right? That anger has no purpose. This is the thinking, right? That anger actually gets in the way mm-hmm. of of being productive. And I think the the narrative though in our society though is that anger is very productive. Mm-hmm. And if you well, if you reward it, if people, you know, get what they want for, you know, right. having a tantrum or whatever. Yeah, then Right, right. And this whole thing of like you're so angry and like do you want something? I mean, that's in many ways teaching people that, you know, anger's okay. Mm-hmm. Right. But if you're ignored every time you get angry, if if the parent literally turns their back and walks away, then it could be different. Right. And also, if you're reminded that anger has no purpose, right, or is devalued. Right. So there's a psychologist, a cross-cultural psychologist who's looked at like societies where anger is devalued. And she's found that people are less likely to call on an emotion that a society thinks is unproductive. Right. Because why would you call on it if it doesn't help? Yeah. But in a society that thinks an emotion is productive, your brain is more likely to call on it, right? But I mean, the parents have a lot of control over this aspect of before kids go to school and stuff, right? Of really teaching that. Listen, you know, I think Ruth Ginsburg's mom would say that. 
Like it's, it never helps to be angry or like it's unproductive. And she was like notorious for like not getting angry. And I, there's some really good quotes from her about it. And it come, it came from her mom, mm -hmm. you know, not society. Well, I think I mean, a lot of it um, just comes from the external environment. I mean, people are anxious about, you know, their work and they're anxious about their health and they're anxious about their finances. And then the easiest thing in the world to do is just make the problem go away in the short run, even if it means a recurrence of the problem later. So, yeah. Well, yeah. the last part of your book, I mean, you, you actually describe a single problem that you resolved, right? Which is, you know, getting Rosie to go to bed. And it, <laughs> it illustrated, you know, every aspect of the kind of team acronym. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. maybe you could just quickly tell us what yes. does the TEAM stand for? And, and then tell us the yeah. story of getting her to bed and how it kind of illustrated this. Yeah, so team, I kind of made up so I can remember these things, um, especially in the moment of like, oh my God, what do I do? But there are like four elements and you could think of five because you can add in the two A's that you can find like all around the world. I think they're very universal when it comes to parenting. I'm sure you can find exceptions, but generally it's the way parents related, have related to children, likely for thousands of years. So T is for togetherness, that things are really done together. This idea that young children, especially go off and do things on their own, like make your bed, go do your homework. Like all, everything is done like by themselves. And you're, we're like pushing that all the time. This is very strange. Instead, children are welcomed into the adult world and guided, like we talked about earlier, right? Given an opportunity to try, got, you know, guided, shoot away if they're very, very like intrusive and destructive, but generally welcomed. And if you want a kid to do something and they're resisting, try doing it together. Let's clean up the room together. Let's go to my work and hang out. You can hang out with me. You know, kids want to be with their family. E is this idea that like is to encourage that the vast majority of people, including children, are much more likely to do something if they don't feel forced, but encouraged. And the Inuit especially have like all these tools to encourage proper behavior and teach proper behavior and get the child to kind of think and figure out what's right instead of like really forcing them to do what you say. And I do this all the time. If I feel like I have to do something, I never want to do it. But if I feel like it's up to me and I'm kind of encouraged, I'll do it. So encourage, not force. And then A is for autonomy, which we've talked about a lot. It's, it's this idea that like, it's not completely independent. And a lot of psychologists, you know, talk about this different differentiating between autonomy and independence. It's, you know, feeling like you have the choice to do what you want from moment to moment, but you have constant responsibility back to a group. So you're constantly like looking after others and making sure they're okay. You're sharing, you're helping, you're being respectful. And so it's it's independence though, but wrapped in this kind of structure. Um, I think it's like the sweet spot. I think we like to be independent, but we also are really social creatures. And we, especially as children, we wanna, we wanna be connected and we wanna contribute. Like we, children want to contribute. And you could also say AA is allo parenting because that is very universal. M is like minimizing interference. So we tend to, like you said at the beginning, the more we do, the better, right? The more we interfere, the better. The more we take them to classes, the more, I mean, just, just this idea that more and more and more when it comes to parenting is better. And in fact, less could be much better. <laughs> like, you know, stepping back and, and watching, watching the little boy to see if he actually goes into the deep end. Inter interfering only when really needed. And when you start to watch your child, instead of talking to them all the time and doing, you know, shaping their behavior, shaping their path, you start to really learn about them, you know, what they're interested in, what they like to do. I watched this little boy for like two hours yesterday swim. And I now I know like everything about the way he swims and like what he likes to do. Well, after, and like, after this podcast is published, I don't think his dad is going to let you take him to the pool anymore. <laughs> but he was totally fine. I mean, I... It was totally there were also like two lifeguards like what literally one lifeguard was right above him the whole time like that's the thing that's the fear right is that i'm a bad parent but one would argue and a lot of parents around the world would say i was a better parent right because he's learning that on his own and you know a lot of times parents give the impression to the child that they're on their own this happened a lot when we were traveling that i thought rosie and i were on our own and i thought the kids were on their own but then like you pay attention and there's somebody behind you watching and making sure you're okay. But it's that sense of like, I'm doing it by myself. Suzanne Gaskins has a beautiful description of it. So she says, if you look at American parents, European American parents, especially, you know, when a child is learning to walk, a toddler, they're in the front holding their hands and saying, come, come this way. 
And you see this with the swimming too. They're like showing the child how to swim, right? And the Maya parent, she says, is behind the toddler and ready to like catch them or hold them up if they fall. Funniest thing I've seen is I've, yeah. I've walked by playgrounds where I'll see four kids and four parents and they're, all the parents are playing with their kid. <laughs> and, yes, and none of the kids are playing crazy, with each other. Right? And I'm like, this is, this is really, really interesting. Where else in the world are you going to see I mean, that? playing with children is very strange. Yeah, yes, exactly. Where else? Maybe, maybe parts of China. Maybe parts of China. But yes, this is very strange, right? And is it good parenting? I don't know. Okay, so it sounds like Rosie's definitely going to go to sleep without you having to yell at her. We know that. And... <laughs> so, so I, yeah, so I finally, I couldn't get Rosie to go to sleep for like a hundred years. I couldn't get Rosie to go to sleep. It was like craziest time in our life. Like our, our day was like, you know, nighttime. And she'd run around and she'd take off her clothes. And my husband would be screaming. I'd be screaming. And what I started to realize is, one, using the formula, right? Like model, practice, and acknowledge. And I realized like, okay, I'm modeling screaming at that time. For sure. I'm modeling like high energy anger and she's practicing it, right? She's practicing getting crazy at night, right? And I was like, well, this is awful. Like, this is, this is why I didn't learn how to go to sleep until I was like 30, 40, because my mom treated me the same way. It was like arguing and yelling and running around. And so I started to say, think, okay, I need to use this team method, right? And so, and I needed to use the two commands an hour. And I challenged the listeners to give your child two commands at night, at bedtime, in the morning before school. And so that involved really like me not doing, saying anything, right? But I would do it together. So when I felt like she was tired, I'd be very calm and I would go and get in her bed and just lay there. And the first couple of nights I just read on the phone for like ever because she wouldn't, she didn't come. But like eventually she got the idea and she would come in, you know, and then I would encourage her. I'd be like, oh, you know, you seem kind of tired. I'm tired. And I would be calm. Everything's about calmness, you know. So we encourage her, E, a little bit of encouragement. Maybe we should brush our teeth, you know. But then she chose it. So autonomy, right? She chose to come upstairs and get in the bed. She chose this, right? And then I would interfere and help, but minimally, as little as possible. And the first couple of nights, she went to bed really, really, really late. I mean, but she got up in the morning, which is crazy. Like, that was the big fear that she wouldn't get up in the morning, you know? But, um... I don't know, it wasn't very long, but after like a week, she started doing it by herself. And, you know, it just became like, like I say in the book, like not hard at all. Like, <laughs> just like, you know, and I think what the problem was is like, I think our method, children aren't learning to sense their bodies and sense like, okay, what it feels like to be, a, to be tired and say, okay, now I need to go to bed because it's so structured and so based on what the parent thinks is the right time. And so I think what we were teaching her over that like week or two weeks was like to really sense that like, oh, my body feels tired now. And this is what we do when I feel tired. And, and I remind her that like, if she gets upset in running around at night, I'll say, you know, I think your I think your body's tired and like your mind's tired. And, you know, so it's like you encourage and, but it's just exactly, it's something that you have to learn. And I wasn't taught it until I was an adult because I went, I was very scheduled. Right. And um, one of the historians t told me that he, he really thinks it's one of the reasons why we have so much problems sleeping is because there's all this anxiety and stress and fighting and around that time that gets trained, right, from a young age. Yeah, it was a very big, a very big change in our lives. Yeah, and it helped you to sleep better, too, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, for sure. I mean, now she's six and she's great. Mm -hmm. I mean, she goes to bed at kind of random times, but, you know, it doesn't bother me. There's one metaphor used in the book, which says, you know, if you want to create a good wine that'll age well, you need to be a good winemaker for one, but you really have to have good soil as well. And so I think, you know, you're describing the winemaking process and you also kind of mentioned it's important to create that environment, right, for your, your child to mature and age well. And that, I think that comes from your um, training in the wine business, which I guess, you know, that'll, <laughs> that'll, be, that'll be another book that you can uh, put out sometime later, right? I tried to sell a wine book a long time ago and I couldn't sell it. Now it might be a different story, so. Right. Well, Michaeline, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a great conversation. Your book, Hunt, Gather, Parent, I think it's going to be a classic. Hopefully everybody will read it. Maybe even they'll have these new holidays. You mean you could start a tour business where you could start having parents take their kids down to these places and get a little dose of parenting instruction and create a little bit of extra you know, income for these, these households. I, I, could, I could see a lot of people signing up for this. It's interesting, though, you know, I don't know if they would want us. 
<laughs> you know, at the beginning when we were in the Arctic, those women were like, okay, this this person has no clue how to parent. And you know, but it's a good idea. I mean, I I do hope that the book spurs journalists and scientists to really value and listen to a lot of different voices, right? Like get over that idea that you brought up at the beginning of like what can we learn? Because there's there is just there's just so much to learn. And every kid is so different, right? And we have this very kind of restricted view of what's right as a parent. And just opening that view up, I think would help a lot of people, you know, and just okay, well this doesn't work for my kid, but maybe this would, you know? And I I hope that happens. I hope that there, there's an Inuit parenting book out soon. And I hope we have an academic department on parenting at some point. Yes. So. Maybe we need an academic department. Maybe eventually that's what, you know, I mean, I do think there's room for treating parenting in the right way. You know, instead of treating it as this like hard science, I think that that could really improve, improve things. I don't think it's doing the field justice by calling it a science because it's just so complex, you know? Well, thanks so much. We'll talk soon. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Unsiloed.